Food pantries and soup kitchens provide a lifeline to countless individuals and families in need of assistance. They often get a ton of volunteers around the holidays, but food pantries and soup kitchens need help all year long. This morning, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're highlighting the work of food pantries and soup kitchens along with their volunteers. Good morning. I'm George Borecki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We begin this morning with Food Bank for New York City. With the rising cost of food and more than 2.5 million New Yorkers who experience difficulty affording food, the demand for food assistance continues to rise. To address this issue, Food Bank distributes food to more than 1,000 community-based member programs in the five boroughs. Heather McGreevy is the volunteer engagement manager at Food Bank for New York City. Ken Shapiro is a volunteer for the organization. They join me now in the studio. Heather, good morning. Good morning. Ken, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Very good. Heather, let's start with you. How big is the need for emergency food in New York City? So there are about 1.4 million New Yorkers that rely on emergency food in New York City, and it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Food Bank for New York City, through our about 1,000 member agencies, a little over that, we feed about 400,000 people a day. Wow, a day. A day. So uh, really and truly the need for... um, the need to meet hunger in New York City is tremendous. So it's it's really, really quite scary, um, especially for New Yorkers that are, are on the edge right now. Um, you know, when you go to a soup kitchen or a food pantry, you know, you're, you're teetering. You're really in an emergency situation. Have the numbers been rising in New York City when it comes to the hungry? Yes. At our soup kitchens and our food pantries, we've noticed an increase um, in the clients that are coming and the frequency that they need to to attend. So yes, definitely that has happened, um, especially within recent years. Did Superstorm Sandy also have an impact? Absolutely. When people have to focus on rebuilding their home, um, when they've lost their jobs, it threw New York into a serious state of chaos because you have all these people that had steady jobs, that had homes, who no longer have that. Um, And because of that, food has become more of an issue. Additionally, the supermarkets in those areas, some of them haven't reopened um, in places like the Rockaways and Coney Island and parts of Staten Island. So because those supermarkets are in there and accessible, people are having a really hard time getting access to food and getting access to affordable food. I think that some people sometimes falsely believe that people who go to a food pantry or a soup kitchen are unemployed. But that's not always the case. There are working people who are in a situation where they need assistance. Absolutely. Um, When you look at a mother of two who's working multiple jobs and, you know, it's not cutting it, and she's working her butt off to make sure that her kids have a roof over their head and clothes on their backs and are able to go to school and all of that, how could you not see that person and feel for them? They are working. You know, while a small portion of our um, of the clients that we serve are homeless, quite a number of the people that we serve are fully employed, but they may be underemployed. Roughly how many food pantries and soup kitchens do you work with in the five boroughs? Over a thousand. Um, and we, we call them affectionately our member agencies. Um, so we work with them to meet their needs. And they're really the the eyes on the ground in identifying what the needs are in specific communities. So what does that mean, meet their needs? What are their needs? 
each soup kitchen and food pantry, it could be different depending on what their clients need. So, for example, in the Far Rockaways, a lot of the folks don't have a place to cook a meal. So the soup kitchens out there are going to be more strained than not. Um, in areas where, you know, there are still homes and places for people to do that, it's possible that a pantry might have, you know, a heavier burden. So that's what I mean when I say that. Do you still rely on good old-fashioned food drives and invite people to bring cans, or is that a thing of the past? No, we sure do, and we highly encourage that. Um, We love, love food drives, and I think that ties well into the work that we do at our warehouse. So we have about a 90,000-square-foot warehouse um, that we operate in. Um, It's in the Bronx. It's in Hunts Point, so not too far from from the Rose Hill campus Mm -hmm. here. And on a daily basis, we could use 100 volunteers there a day. Um, and you're like, what could volunteers be doing in a warehouse? Uh, we have this awesome room. We call it the repack room. Um, and it's a state-of-the-art room. It's temperature controlled. And it's designed so that we're able to repackage and organize donations into usable forms for our member agencies. Say you do a food drive here um, at the Fordham campus. Um, what happens is that can go to our warehouse and then volunteers come and they sort it and they say, you know, put all the veggies in this box and put all the fruit in this box. Um, And then our member agencies can receive it that way. Additionally, we receive large bulk donations. That's one of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing we do um, as a food bank. You mentioned the V word, volunteer. Volunteer. Yes. And your title with the food (laughs) bank for New York City is volunteer engagement manager, right? Yes. Yes. Um, We adore volunteers at food bank. I don't think I could do my job every day if I didn't. Uh, we have a tremendous need, though, for volunteers at Food Bank. Without our volunteers, we can't do the work we do. Um, we also run a um, kitchen and a soup pantry, our community kitchen and pantry in West Harlem. And without the volunteers there, you know, having to do a meal service in preparation for four to 500 people on a nightly basis couldn't happen. Uh, so volunteers are incredibly essential to the work we do. And um, volunteers like Ken in our tax program, um, they make sure that New Yorkers receive over $80 million in refunds in last year. So when you think about the tremendous, tremendous impact that kind of refund can have on our community and on the economy in New York City, to think that that was because Ken took the time to volunteer is really and truly incredible. Ken, talk to us more about your involvement with the food bank. Heather mentioned a little bit about it, but tell us more. Okay. At my job, I was reading emails, uh, the promotions about various volunteer organizations throughout the uh, city area. So I saw that the uh, VITA program was an interesting way to have a challenge and also uh, participate and help out. So um, we had to take an online course after an orientation period and uh, study and certify with this program uh, to to enable us to know enough to use the software to meet people, to know the proper ethical behaviors, <coughs> and the tax law. And so uh, we had a training program in Brooklyn at the Metro Tech Center, and um, we produced the, the documentation that we had passed the test. And then uh, we signed up. We had to sign up for different locations out throughout the city, so I found a convenient location in Far Rockaway, and I, I went uh, starting in February, and it, it lasted through the you know the tax season, which was April fourth or tenth around there, and it was it was awesome. And what is your day job? 
I work at J.P. Morgan Chase uh, in the software capacity, doing um, trading support. So I'm sure you're a busy guy. What prompted you to get involved and volunteer your time? Well, it's busy during the week, yes, but on weekends it's not much uh, activity for the work. Uh, so my kids are grown. They, you know, they're in school, college, and I have the time. And I just thought uh, when you're working all day, all week, just focusing on software and arcane things, it's not emotionally satisfying, although it's you know worthwhile in a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. But on a personal level, it's not that satisfying. So. You know, I was looking through these emails for a long time, and I just decided that, hey, this is one I'm going to finally do. Either it's now or never, or I guess you just got to put up or shut up in your own mind. <laughs> <laughs> Ken did much more than put up and shut up. Uh, so our tax volunteers, um, they're expected to do um, about two hours uh, for the shifts that they commit to. And Ken stayed extra for every single shift that he did um, for over 70 hours of service, which is more than double what we expect a typical tax volunteer to do. Um, and so for him to take that extra step, it was really incredible. Uh, he made sure that that many more people could receive that service and, and could be in a better place. So we're really grateful for, for volunteers like Ken. Is volunteering infectious? Ken, I would imagine you tell other people about the work that you do with the food bank. Yeah, I do talk about it. I tell my kids about it. I foster any uh, involvement they may be interested in. I don't push anything on them. But I do talk about it. And uh, it's so interesting to me that I just have to get it out of my brain and tell people. Heather, for someone who feels that I simply don't have the time, I'm busy, I work, I have kids, I got to do all these other stuff, how much time does it actually take? It's really easy. It, it, it can be really easy. Um, I, I have a full-time job. I get it, you know, or if you're going to the gym or if you're, you know, running around with your kids or you have a dog or whatever the case may be, um, maybe you don't have a few hours to give, um, but you can still give back to food bank. You can do something like running a canned food drive um, or you can run a virtual food drive. Uh, you can get the word out about how important hunger is in New York City. Whatever time you give, um, that's okay. It's okay. We can help you at Food Bank to find a way that works best for you. Um, and that that is also part of my job at Food Bank, that if, if you're constrained by schedules or um, you're not really sure where to start or you're not sure what to do, come talk to us and we can help you out with that. Um, it could only take an hour or two of your time. Um, and if you have more to give, then we welcome that too. I think Ken referred to the program as the VITA program. Is that right, the one that you're involved? What does that it's, stand for? It's the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance okay. Program. Um, and so uh, we have one of the largest uh, VITA programs in the Bye. country. Um, and so it's it's quite hefty. All right. Is there anything either of you two would want to add? I encourage volunteerism. I mean, you get more out of it than you give. That's what I believe. So I'm glad I'm on this station talking to other people. Maybe one person or two can listen and, and start new, something new. Ken, thank you. And Heather, how about you? The need is high. Uh, we could use up to 800 volunteers in a given week at Food Bank. Um, and so if you're looking to get started and you want to try out your first volunteer opportunity or you're a seasoned vet, uh, we more than welcome you. Um, and it's with the help of volunteers like Ken that we make our work happen. And direct people to which website to find out more? Volunteer.foodbanknyc.org. Heather, thanks so much. Thank you so much, George. Ken, thank you. Thank you.
Heather McGreevy is the Volunteer Engagement Manager at Food Bank for New York City. Ken Shapiro is a volunteer for the organization. You can find Food Bank online at foodbanknyc.org. As Heather and Ken talked about, food banks and soup kitchens rely on volunteers to help meet the growing demand for emergency food assistance. Eleanor Kohler volunteers at St. John's Social Ministry in Riverhead, New York. I recently talked with her about what she gets out of volunteering. How long have you been volunteering? In total, I've been volunteering, I say, roughly about eight years. I did about four years, and then I took off for a little bit, and I just came back again. What inspired you to volunteer? Well, like most retirees, I had worked at the local library here in Riverhead for 29 years. And when I retired, I suddenly looked out the window one day, and there's lots of things to do around your house and around your property. But I felt I needed to do something else. So I called Mary up on the telephone, who runs the social ministry, and she said, come on down, pick a day. And I volunteered for one day without really knowing anything or anybody, and lo and behold, I ran into people that I had met when my children were in grammar school, because at that time, when St. John's had their school, all the mothers had a volunteer for hot dog day, yard duty, anything, selling tickets, chances. So all of a sudden, I got back into the community again, which I had left when I was working. What do you find most inspiring about volunteering at a food pantry in particular? Well, I guess I never realized that there are people who don't have food. Uh, You see pictures in the movies, uh, on television, and you say, well, that's not around here. If you walk around the streets of Riverhead, you don't see people begging or laying on street corners like you do in the city, so you think there are no people who are hungry. Yet running in this food pantry, all of a sudden, there are lots of people who may not be starving, but they don't have much of anything. And they're so grateful. It, It makes you very, very guilty about what you have, and you want to share it. Was there a particular day where you walked out of here feeling most inspired, that the smile was perhaps bigger than any other day? Well, every day when we close up for the day, you you do feel that it's been good because you've done good. But I'd like to tell you uh, about something that happened. Uh, St. John's here has uh, a food uh, clothing section where people donate clothing, and we put it out in a, a waiting room, and it's free. And people come and take whatever clothing they want. Well, one lady came, and I had my husband had just passed away, and he was a very heavy set man, extra large size. You don't get too many of those people coming in who need food. But I put his uh, T-shirts and some uh, other things out for someone to pick up. And another woman came in, and she saw it, and she was so happy that this size was available. That evening, she had gotten my telephone number and called me at home because she brought the clothes home to her son, who was mentally handicapped. And one of the T-shirts have a picture of a dog on it. And she said they had a dog who looked just like the picture of the dog on the T-shirt. And her son got so excited, and the family got so excited. What is the one thing you would want to tell someone else about the importance of volunteering, of taking the time out of their own busy lives to do what you do? Everybody who knows that you work as a volunteer will always ask you, how do you do it? They'd like to do something but they just can't make that final step. Everybody wants to help other people. I think it's a basic human feeling. 
but until you actually get down and do something, you can't understand how good it makes you feel. You help other people, and that's very good. You help the poor, you help the hungry, and you owe the children. They don't understand about being poor and not having food, but they're happy when you just talk to them. And if you want to say, what do I get out of it and what other people get out of it, you can't explain it. It's just a good feeling. And you can look back and say, when you go to sleep at night, I did something good today. This was a good day. I can put a plus check on this day. It wasn't a day that I just enjoyed myself, put a plant in the garden, or went out to lunch. I did something that maybe they said, Eleanor, you made a difference today. All right, Eleanor, anything else you would like to add? Well, if you have the time, you come on down and volunteer. There's always room for volunteers, any, any type of volunteering. That's what the world is made of, people helping their neighbors. That's it. That was Eleanor Kohler. She volunteers at the food pantry of St. John's Social Ministry in Riverhead on Long Island. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. This morning, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're highlighting the work of food pantries and soup kitchens, as well as their volunteers. We now hear about a chef at a soup kitchen who's also culinary director at the Waldorf Astoria here in New York City. While David Garcelon has cooked for heads of state, celebrities, and the Queen of England, he also cooks for the homeless. WFUV's Stephanie Quo reports on how he helped turn an ordinary New York soup kitchen into a five-star establishment. Every second Wednesday of the month, David Garcelon becomes one of the city's earliest risers. In the misty, groggy, pre-dawn hours of the morning, he joins an intimate team of volunteers to prepare hot meals for 200 homeless men and women. They begin to line up outside St. Bart's doors in midtown Manhattan at 5 a.m. On this particular day, he's making shepherd's pie. You know, I'm used to that. That's what, that's what I've done for years. I can, I can almost do it with my eyes closed. In just two short hours, the food is ready. And Chef Garcelon crosses the street and swaps his casual plaid shirt and black apron for a crisp white toque and chef's coat. The embroidery on it reads, Waldorf Astoria. During the day, Garcelon is the director of culinary there. He oversees about 150 chefs who serve hundreds of thousands of meals a year to the hotel's upscale clientele. Over the years, he's fed everyone from rock stars to Queen Elizabeth II. But while many in his position would get comfortable cozying up to the stars, Garcelon keeps going back to St. Bart's. It's being part of the community. I don't think it's appropriate for us to just say, you know, that's beneath us and let somebody else do it. For me to spend two hours a month, it'd be really hard to walk away from that. It's the soup kitchen's mission to serve quality, complex meals with healthy and hearty ingredients. He spends the first part of the morning just breaking apart fresh thyme. He says being there gives him more purpose as a chef, bringing a level of skill and knowledge of food he believes isn't reserved for the well-to-do. If you're a professional chef, you know, you really take pride in, in whatever you're cooking, whoever it's for, and, you know, whether it's for our employee cafeteria here or whether it's for, you know, head of state or, or, or some of the prestigious people to stay with us. Good food, you know, should be available to everyone. Garcelon plans to continue cooking every second Wednesday. 
He's also working to commission more hotels in the city to donate meals to the shelter at St. Bart's. For WFUV News, I'm Stephanie Quo. What image comes to mind when you think of a food pantry or soup kitchen? Perhaps it's something along the lines of what you'd see in Oliver Twist. Well, many of today's food pantries and soup kitchens are a far cry from what's depicted in a Charles Dickens novel. WFUV's Stephanie Quo spent the last several weeks visiting food pantries and soup kitchens to put together a special series of reports, one of which we just heard. She joins us now in the studio to share more of her observations. Stephanie, nice to have you here. It's great to be here, George. Stephanie, what did you immediately notice when you started reporting this series? That hunger is still very much alive and well in New York City and and all across the country, really. You go to these soup kitchens and these food pantries and you see lines of people outside or you see that the lobbies are full. And it's a great indication that there's still very many people out there who aren't being fed well and rely on these services. It's interesting because I was told that A lot of these soup kitchens in New York City were built in response to, I guess, Reagan-era politics and the culture of poverty, right? And a lot of these soup kitchens told me, they said that they were meant to stay in business for just a little while. And actually, the um, Reverend Glenn Chalmers of the Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen in Chelsea said something very interesting to me. I think the wonderful story is that we've been able to really provide space and food and support services for homeless people, for people who are living on the edge. The terrible thing is that we're still in business. Um, And yeah, and so that's very interesting because, you know, it is a wonderful and a terrible story that we have such great people helping the hungry and the homeless in New York City, but the fact that they're still doing it is a signal of how hunger is not getting better, it's getting worse in the city. What, if anything, did you notice about the operation of these food pantries and soup kitchens that took you by surprise? that there's a very shifting nature of wanting to make going to one and using their services as a respectable and dignified experience. Because as I said before, like the Reagan era politics and the culture of poverty, the home people who use soup kitchens, the homeless, the poor, tended to be seen as lazy or unable to help themselves or unwilling to help themselves. So service tend to be something that they did begrudgingly. And so what what I see soup kitchens doing now is that they want to make it more okay to come, more they want their clients to be more comfortable so that they can actually benefit from these experiences. Um, and so one of the ways that I saw, and it's something that's sweeping across all soup kitchens, is a focus on nutrition and quality ingredients. You know, as you've heard before, I spoke to David Garslan, who is the chef at the Waldorf Astoria and volunteers at a soup kitchen. He likes to bring in some of the produce that he grows at the Astoria to the soup kitchen because he believes that The way you would feed anyone is how you should feed the homeless and how you should feed the poor. And so here's an excerpt from the interview that didn't make it into the story that I thought was very interesting. You know, a lot of the health issues that the people have now, um, I believe, are really due to processed food more more so than anything else. You know, if you cook food from scratch, you're not going to put too much salt or too much sugar in it. You know, it's it's all the processed uh, food that, um, that people are eating. And it's really sad, I think, when you see you know, hospitals and nursing homes and and homeless shelters where, you know, that's all they're using. What about technological advances at food pantries and soup kitchens? That's actually one of the most interesting things that I found was that, you know, the image that comes to mind of a soup kitchen is very much this anachronistic um, old church with, you know, steel trays and, you know, everything's very dark and dirty. But what I noticed, especially at places like St. John's Bread and Life and bed Brooklyn, was that they wanted to integrate something very high tech. Um, so what I found was they used touchscreens, um, a touchscreen order system for their food pantry where clients come in and they, they pick out what they want from a menu and then the order gets shot back, just like a diner. 
and then their orders are packaged and they're out the door in less than an hour. And what's really great about that and what um, the executive director of Spread and Life told me was that technology is an important aspect of life for anyone, right? So to exclude the poor, to exclude the homeless from it would be an injustice. So by making technology normative for them, it becomes more respectable. It makes them feel comfortable going there. And it also makes them feel comfortable in the fact that they're dealing with people who are competent, right? And so that's what technology has shown me. And then there's one more thing, um, putting soup kitchens on wheels which is another interesting aspect. It isn't really groundbreaking in the, you know, in recent years, but in the grand scheme of how we've dealt with hunger and how we've dealt with poverty, being aware of people's restraints and people's limitations is something that hasn't been done before. So what these mobile soup kitchens do is that they bring food to communities that are less mobile, that have less access, that are more needy. And that's something that I thought was really fantastic. How much of a lifeline are those mobile soup kitchens for these individuals? Because I know you spoke to people directly who were waiting there for the services. Right. So some of the communities that I, that these soup kitchens go to, for instance, like Far Rockaway or maybe Jackson Heights or some of the very poor communities in Williamsburg and in Bushwick, there aren't a lot of soup kitchens there. There aren't a lot of emergency food services available to them. So the fact is a lot of these people depend on meals being given to them. And one man I spoke to said that he's there every Friday because he knows that truck is there every Friday. And that's how you can guarantee getting lunch and dinner in a day. So you can see kind of the need to be able to have food everywhere. What about the impact of Superstorm Sandy in areas like the Rockaways in terms of demand at food pantries and soup kitchens? The one thing I learned was that, especially in Far Rockaway, where it is just so isolated and so far away from city center, is that there weren't very many emergency food services there to begin with. So you're having, and it's also one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City, so already you have these people who don't have enough, and then they're not given enough. And then once Superstorm Sandy came in and wiped out their available resources, they were even more needy. And the great thing is that there were some churches that were further from the coastline that stepped up. For instance, one of them I spoke to, the community church at the Nazarene, they became kind of a a hub location for where people could go and get food. But the fact is, it was one. It was one to serve thousands and thousands of people. And simply, there's just not enough manpower, right, for those areas. Stephanie, you've used the word dignity and respect a lot in our conversation. What does that have to do with all of this, and why does it matter? I mentioned very briefly that being able to make something more dignified and more respectable makes it makes people want to use something, right? So like I said, to serve someone begrudgingly isn't going to ensure trust. It isn't going to promote, encourage people to come back. Um, I spoke to Tony Butler, who is the executive director of Bread and Life, and he said something very interesting about our past that dates way back before the Reagan era. We are the vestiges of the poor laws, the vestiges of what uh, Charles Dickens called the bitter bread of poverty that we give people here, you poor bastard, you better appreciate this kind of thing. We're a Calvinist nation. I mean, Calvinist thought equates poverty and sin and wealth and virtue. Poor people are not virtuous, so they must be doing something wrong. They must be lazy. They must be sneaky. Um, And that bias, I think, still haunts us. Uh, Going back to his, you know, what he said, stigmatizing um, dependence and stigmatizing poverty and stigmatizing homelessness and hunger doesn't help anybody, right? It doesn't really deter poverty. It just kind of hides it. And so it discourages people from seeking help, and really that solves nothing, and it makes it worse in the long run. And that's why creating a good experience is one step towards solving the greater problem. So overall, what's your takeaway from this series? 
Unfortunately, I don't have great news, right? Because hunger is a very complex issue, and I could spend my entire life studying it. But the fact it's how I started off this interview was that hunger is still very much present. It's not going anywhere, at least not in my lifetime. But there are changes that there are people out there who want to make a difference, and they're doing it in the smallest ways possible. Stephanie Quo, thank you so much. Thank you. Stephanie Quo is a reporter and editor in the WFUV newsroom. Her series of reports on food pantries and soup kitchens is online at WFUVnews.org. For more information about the organizations featured on today's show, go to WFUV.org cityscape. And for more information on WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit WFUV.org slash Strike Accord. That's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boracki. My thanks to senior producer Morlane Chin and producers Alana Holbrook and Veronica Volk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.